from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on creative problem solving, or as our guest, Jennifer Riel, will explain, integrative thinking. Increasingly, the discussion of our most urgent problems, um, the biggest questions that we face, are reduced to a debate between binary polar opposites, few of which are actually at all useful. Republican or Democrat, us or them, win or lose. And if that's not bad enough, the only options we wind up considering to solve those problems or answer those questions usually come from the loudest and most powerful voices only. Whether we're talking about our national dilemmas, organizational strategy, or simply trying to navigate a team meeting at work, our biggest challenge is often our inability to move beyond those tensions. We either silence or ignore the inventive voices in the room and wind up even further away from meaningful solutions and each other in the process. Today's guest, thankfully, has a better way. Jennifer Riel is the author of Creating Great Choices, a leader's guide to integrative thinking. She's going to teach us all how to create new and better answers to seemingly intractable problems that actually depends on the contributions of all the voices in the room. Um, Your voice is actually one we'd love to have in the room with us. So our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you'd like to get advice from Jennifer on moving past the problem and onto the solution in your world, or just join in the conversation, we really would love to hear from you. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So today's guest, Jennifer Riel, is an adjunct professor at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. She's a strategic advisor to senior leaders at a number of Fortune 500 companies. She is co-author with Roger Martin and A.G. Laffley of the Playing to Win Strategy Toolkit. And her new book with Roger Martin, uh, who is a world-renowned strategic thinker, is called Creating Great Choices, a Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking. It was first intru- This idea of integrative thinking was first introduced by Roger in his book, The Opposable Mind, um, but it's an approach to problem solving that uses opposing ideas as the basis for innovation. So with that, I'll say, Jennifer, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a pleasure to be there. Um, Jennifer, you know, I'm actually a professional innovator. It's been my job through my whole career to create new solutions in organizations with other people. And I keep seeing this pattern where it's not a lack of imagination, but often the interpersonal dynamics that prevent creative problem solving from moving forward. Is this just my experience or is this a pattern elsewhere? I would say it's definitely a pattern elsewhere, uh, unfortunately. (laughs) And I think the reason it happens uh, stems from a fundamental misunderstanding that that we have about how we engage with the world. So so the way I think about it is this. Um, It feels to us like the answers that we come to um, come from a deep, rich understanding of the reality of the world. So, of course, they are the right answers. And when someone sitting across from us has a very, very different answer, our natural reaction is not to say, well, that's interesting. I wonder what they see that I don't see, but rather to say, that's nuts. I've got to convince them that they're wrong and that that my answer is the right answer. Is it that when we do that, what are the factors that are making us say that's nuts? 
are we afraid of letting someone else be right? Or are we just so convinced that we are right? Or is it the drive to win an argument? I think it's a little bit of all of those things. So I think there is a natural piece of it. And the natural piece of it is that um, the world we live in is so complex that our minds are constantly building these simplified models. Um, And the models feel to us really rich and really robust. We're not aware of all the things that we're leaving out. We just know that the conclusion feels robust and rich and like the right answer. And so that natural powerful feeling of correctness, of closure, and the powerful cognitive rewards, the little burst of happiness when we are done, <laughs> is super powerful. And, and it makes it really hard for us to want to reopen the consideration. So it's partly natural, but it's also learned. If you think about from kindergarten on, we are told there's one right answer. It's the answer in the back of the teacher's book, right? And we have to find that answer. <laughs> as quickly as we can, and then defend that that is, in fact, the correct answer. Um, And so we learn very, very early on uh, that any answer that isn't the one in our head is is a threat to our being right. It's a threat to showing people how smart we are. Um, And so there's a little bit of fear, too, losing the argument, losing face, um, and, and not looking like you have the answer you need to have, especially in an organization where having the right answer is so important to being able to move up in an organizational hierarchy. When you were explaining some of that, you referred to how, like, our and I I think what you're referring to is our brains are processing all this information. Mm -hmm. And we're making lots and lots of decisions that we're not even aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how somebody explained to me once what our biases really are, that some of them are actually ways that our brain tries to be efficient. Mm-hmm. some of which are helpful and some of which are not. To what degree do our biases get in the way of helping us work together to solve some problems? Well, I think um, certainly as we just look in the political context today, we know our biases are getting in the way <laughs> of making good decisions, but even not at that level, even for those of us who consider ourselves a little bit more open-minded than we might see on Twitter on a day-to-day basis, um, our natural uh, heuristics, the way we think about and engage with the world, are simplifications. If, if you read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, he does a wonderful job of helping us understand the ways in which our minds systematically make these mistakes. Uh, and they're mistakes of simplification, of moving quickly, of, of working on autopilot. And uh, when when we do that, when we operate on autopilot, when we fail to dig more deeply into our thinking and the reasons we believe what we believe, it's very, very natural to continue in the status quo, to keep uh, pushing on the answers that we already have, and to see people who see the world differently as, as threatening or unhelpful or just plain wrong. I mean, how often do you spend time engaging in deep conversation with someone you think is wrong? <laughs> right. <laughs> At a certain point, you get frustrated and give up. I think you do, or you you unfortunately work with this person, and so you have to keep engaging with them. But we build narratives in our mind Mm -hmm. about the people who hold opposing answers than we do. So if you think about it, if if I have uh, one very – I have a strong view about the answer, and you believe, Laura, very powerfully in in an answer that is really different – I look at you and I'm thinking, how could she possibly 
have come to that conclusion. And there aren't a lot of terribly kind-hearted explanations, <laughs> right? It, it typically boils down to one of two things, particularly in organizations. One, I might think to myself, well, she's just not as smart as me. Right, am right? I just stupid? <laughs> and if you've had someone explain the right answer to you as if you're stupid, which many women in organizations have experienced in, <laughs> in their careers, you know how, how horrible that is and, and how you feel um, frustrated and, and you walk out of the room probably less uh, engaged with that person mm-hmm. or liking that person less. So that's one possible explanation. And then there's, there's another. I might be perfectly aware that you are not stupid. I know for a fact, Laura, that you're not. And yet you're still arguing for what we both know is the wrong answer. Because if you're smart, you know it's the wrong answer. Of course. <laughs> so now I start to build a different narrative. You know what the right answer is. You're arguing for the wrong one. You must have some hidden agenda, some nefarious reason, some secret uh, agenda of your own. So now you're not stupid, you're evil, right? Yes. <laughs> and we do this in organizations too, right? Often departments. Yes. Uh, the finance department in particular, mm-hmm. right? Um, they don't have the best interests of the customer at heart, and they don't really understand why it's important to spend this additional $500,000 on this particular thing. Um, they're always saying no to us, and so we start... Uh, treating them as evil and cutting them off from from even being in the meetings because we feel like we know what they're going to say and we know why. And we've also then gone through kind of an internal process of trying to solve a problem, revealing disagreement, feeling threatened Mm -hmm. by the disagreement, and which results in our attaching our disagreement about the ideas to dislike and distrust of one another. I think it's a really lovely way of putting it, Laura. I think that we've we've become so conflict-averse in organizations. We have this sense of what a good meeting is. And I often will ask executives, like, describe to me a good meeting. And often they'll talk about, you know, we go in and everyone's getting along and we're all kind of agreeing on the right, the right course of action, to which I say, well, why did you need to meet? <laughs> you could have done that <laughs> right. on an email. For me, the good meeting is that we constructively dive into the areas where we disagree and we come out with a better answer than we had when we walked in the room. It's just a very different way of thinking about um, what good looks like in terms of interpersonal interaction, in terms of decision-making in organizations. And also when we think about that kind of context, and this is what I was uh, alluding to in the introduction, that when our conversation When our discussion is not a conversation, but it becomes a debate, and our identities get attached to that debate, Mm -hmm. and it's fueling distance, Mm -hmm. um, the less strong voices and the more vulnerable people in the room are going to get silenced, correct? I mean, I think there's good evidence to suggest that this is the case. Even in places we believe that's less likely to happen, there was a a great article um, that came out in, in, I think it was the Washington Post. Uh, towards the end of the, uh, Obama's second term, in which the women talked about, even in a White House that you would assume would be as en- enlightened as that one, they felt as as women that their voices weren't being heard, that they weren't actually uh, able to uh, speak as loudly or, or mm-hmm. be as, as well heard as some of the men in the room. And so they started uh creating little workarounds and mechanisms, they would amplify each other's voice. As soon as a woman said something in a meeting, another woman would 
say it again and, and make sure that the, the sort of uh, credit for that comment went back to the woman who originally said it. And this is in reaction to their own anecdotal observations and also um, some good academic research that says very often in these kinds of meetings, uh, a woman will share an idea, there will be no response, and then later a man will say the same thing, and then everyone will say, well, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, and it's not necessarily about gender, but it's often about um, you know, the way in which we're communicating the ideas. The second person uh, often gets credit regardless of gender, and it happened to be the case in a, in a lot of the situations <laughs> that it was a man who was the second person to speak. So it absolutely is, is happening in all kinds of organizations, and it's not due to any um, sort of ill intention on the, on the part of the leaders. It just happens to be um, a feature of the way that we interact with each other. Absolutely. And something that we learned from Iris Bonet, who was re- recently on the show, is that there are ways we can engineer our processes and environments to overcome some of those patterns that we gravitate towards um, kind of subconsciously Mm -hmm. um, so that when we actually have diverse population in the room, their voices can all be heard um, or each individual can be considered. And one of the things that really struck me, and I want to talk about the details of it, is that integrative thinking seems like it's not just Um, this incredible way to come to better solutions than we would ever come to with the binary debate. It also depends on the inclusion of all the voices. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely true. I think um, this idea that that Roger, my co-author Roger Martin, first wrote about in The Opposable Mind um, is a pretty simple principle, right? This notion that there is power in leveraging the tension of opposing answers but the cool thing for me is is the effect that that has on the on the social construct, on the way in which we talk to each other, on the kinds of conversations we're able to have, and the way in which every participant in the room can see their role differently than they might. Um, and so that was sort of a powerful reason for me to want to dive into a process for integrative thinking that could help more people do this more of the time. Absolutely. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with the brilliant Jennifer Riel, co-author of the new book, Creating Great Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking. If you have a question about how to get integrative thinking happening in your world, how to close that chasm of the binary point of view, give us a call. We'd really love to hear from you at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So I read... I dove into the book, Jennifer, and I really appreciated it because, well, you introduce us to a lot of concepts and principles. It's very much a how-to book. Mm. So it's almost like you could go cover to cover and really, if you've never thought about these concepts before, um, bring it into your work life pretty easily. So, hey, thank you for doing that. You're very welcome. Thank Um, you. (laughs) But one of the first... um, principles that you shared with us is about three things that are three principles of better decision making. Um, And I think they were metacognition, empathy, and creativity. Could you explain them to us? Absolutely. Um, And really, this came out of reflection on what we believe is lacking in our current organizational decision making processes, right? So if we think about how we make decisions, particularly in large organizations now, um, you put together your cross-functional team designing for diversity. <laughs> I Yay. thought you were going to say dysfunctional, but yes, cross-functional. And maybe dysfunctional <laughs> also, but, you know, we go in with very positive intentions. It's true. It's true. Um, we frame up this problem, and then we immediately start 
searching for solutions. What's the answer? What is the answer? And again, this is tied to our natural biases. We want to come to closure as quickly as we can. Um, uncertainty and, and cognitive dissonance are uncomfortable for us. So we start seeking the answer. And notice I say the answer. What is the right answer? The single answer. Yeah. And maybe we get a couple of options on the table and, uh, so we have to choose between them, right? Now that we've got a couple of different possible answers, let's figure out which is the right one. We're going to take all of our tools of analysis and we're going to dive deeply and figure out the good and the bad and the pros and the cons of, of all of these different different possible answers. And as we do so and analyze and analyze and analyze, <laughs> we get less excited about every single one of them. Um, and we start to realize that you know, there are factions in the organization that are lining up behind different options, and so we're not really even going to be able to choose one. We're going to have to figure out how to build a bit of a Frankenstein choice where we take a bit of the good and a bit of the bad of different things, and we kind of squish them together into this quite unattractive and slightly scary monster of but a, if, if an we, option. But if we make everybody happy in the room, does that make it worth it? Well, I mean, I think what we do is make sure that no one's furious. Right? <laughs> right. If, if we think about what really happens in those moments of slightly miserable compromise, we're just making sure that no one is outraged. No one's going to walk out and say, I'm never going to that meeting again. There's no way that's going to work. We're just trying to get everyone to a sort of low-grade level of satisfaction right? as opposed to delight and excitement about moving forward. Um, and often as I describe those meetings, you sort of see people around the room like, yes, that is my life. That is what I do all day, every day. And, and what we feel is missing in that process are these, these three elements. Um, so when we say metacognition, um, that's sort of the, the fancy way of saying thinking about our own thinking, being much clearer about what we believe and why we believe it. As I say, we're often very clear about the conclusion we've reached, but we're not terribly rigorous about tracking our thinking back to say, how did I get here and what did I miss? What did I leave out of my reasoning that led me to this being the answer as opposed to something very different? Right. Like, am I defending this because I really think it's the right idea? Am I defending it because I'll be embarrassed if my suggestion isn't taken? Mm-hmm. And that is, um, we know that happens. We know once you've said it out loud you're much more likely to defend it even in the face of mounting evidence that it's not a great answer because you've now publicly declared that you think that this is the single right answer. There's not a lot of wiggle room for you. It's like we and the suggestion have become the candidates and we're fighting to get elected. Yes, and and that happens in organizational meetings all the time, right? Who's going to win? It's a a win-lose, zero-sum kind of thing. Is the boss going to sort of nod at me or nod at you? I was um, was listening to the the Hamilton soundtrack, uh, which I do often. Um, (laughs) And there's this moment where uh, Washington has to choose between Jefferson, is Jefferson right or is is, uh, uh, Hamilton right? Um, and it's that moment, right? Like it's literally the leader blessing. Yes. You have the right answer versus you have the right answer. So it goes back a long ways in our political construct and in our organizational constructs as well. And and it's something innate, I think, even in families, which sibling is right. Mm-hmm. Somebody's always like and, – and you nailed it by saying it's part of our zero-sum thinking and that we haven't figured out in organizations how to embrace the idea that um, somebody doesn't have to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think 
even when we talk about a concept, I spend a lot of time talking about strategy. Um, a lot of the language of strategy comes from warfare and sports games where typically there is a single winner. Um, and if anyone can be said to win in, in warfare, obviously. Um, so there is this sense of someone's going to win, and that means that someone else is necessarily going to lose. And we don't want it to be us. Of course not. So you'll defend, you'll attack, you'll do whatever you need to do to make sure that your idea is the idea that wins. Um, by the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Jennifer Riel, co-author of the new book, Creating Great Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking. Are you facing a difficult decision at work? Do you hate all the possibilities in front of you? Call us and we'll talk about it. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So as you're talking about this kind of, it almost becomes, you know, hostile and competitive. And, if, and you know, I feel the sense that we should have more compassion, which leads me to your second principle, which is empathy. Who are we having empathy for and how do we build it? So there are a couple of ways that, that we think about having empathy. Um, at core, though, if, if the first principle is you need to understand your own thinking more deeply and understand what is lacking about it, uh, the parallel to that is that you need to genuinely seek to understand the thinking of the person sitting across from you, that person who has a very different answer, who pushes your buttons, and who, frankly, you're not all that curious about. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and so you need to be able to more deeply understand their thinking. And in order to have a hope of doing that in an authentic and genuine and open way, empathy is the key. And empathy is, is not about agreeing. Empathy is not about being nice. Empathy is about seeking to understand that person's perspective as they understand it, right? To be able to understand why they believe what they believe in a way that isn't um, immediately judgmental of it or immediately dismissive of it. And importantly, this isn't, this is something bigger and deeper and more powerful than saying, what's my opponent's agenda? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, because that we can do pretty easily, and there's already a, a pretty weighty judgment, uh, <laughs> value judgment associated <laughs> yes. with what's my opponent's agenda. Right, because um, A, we don't want them to be opponents. Yes. And and realizing that an articulated agenda reflects all those same kind of biases and subconscious decisions, and it's really about the deeper question of what's motivating them? What are they up against? What do they need? Yeah, and, and if I assume something other than they are, one, stupid or two, evil, but rather <laughs> they are well-intentioned and believe what they believe, how, how do I get closer to understanding what that actually looks like? And, and it's not about, as I say, agreeing. Sometimes people get very nervous, right? Because if, if this person has the wrong answer, I could be somehow seduced, right? If I lean too far into seeking to understand their perspective, all of a sudden I'll be brainwashed into believing what they believe, and that would be uh, terrifying. It's, it's not that, but it is about acknowledging um, that if we fail to understand the other side, if we fail to at least try to understand the thinking that leads to the opposing conclusion, we have no hope of improving our own thinking. Right? Absolutely. They see something we don't see. And if we can instead bring that empathy into the room, into the discourse. Mm -hmm. They stop being the enemy. Mm -hmm. No one is at political risk for trying to understand their perspective. Mm -hmm. And instead, we do a much better job of 
working together to create a solution that works. And and that's ultimately what we're after. And you know, sometimes people will say, as you've just described it in the, in this very lovely way, um, they'll say, "Well, that sounds nice, but what if I'm the only one being empathic, right? What if I'm the only one who's willing to engage and they're still being a jerk?" <laughs> um, and that is a theoretical problem. But what's fascinating to me over sort of ten years of of doing this kind of work, I've never seen it actually happen, right? Because think about your own reaction when someone is sitting across from you and is genuinely curious about how you think. Mm-hmm. It's a gift, right? It's oh, my gosh. It's a really powerful thing for someone to do. And, again, this is where we can help um, our biases actually work for us, right? Someone who is being curious and engaging and, and interested in what we believe is more likely to produce that from us, right? Our, yeah. our cognitive biases lead us to want to reciprocate that kind of behavior. And that's been my observation is that we can see this virtuous cycle of curiosity that emerges out of a different kind of discourse. Right, because it seems like when that happens, one of the things it does is it lets us know we're safe, mm-hmm. that instead of being attacked, somebody's interested, and um, we get to share the thing that we're trying to make real. But I wonder if it also taps into something kind of deeper and more personal and sometimes less known to us is that we feel heard and seen. Mm-hmm. It acknowledges the validity of our point of view at the very point instead of the experience of having us negated by the bluster from the other side. I think that's very powerful. If, if you consider what causes us to most firmly stick in our pre-existing idea, it is often that we haven't felt heard, that we felt dismissed, and so we restate, and we restate, and we say it again, and <laughs> slower and louder, right? Um, until someone eventually is, is going to say, all right, I get it, I get what you're saying. Um, and so it's about you know, backing away from that need to um, defend what I believe, because if I can more deeply understand what you believe then we can have a different kind of conversation. And if we start to do that, let's say I'm I'm feeling attacked by everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. Nobody's listening to me. But you start to ask me those questions. Mm -hmm. You're the one who gets me engaged and makes me feel heard. Um, Is it the pattern that then I'm more likely to do that in turn? Will it be disarming and including to the person you're doing it with? So maybe not in the very first meeting, right? We have long institutional (laughs) track records of distrust, right? It takes multiple efforts of establishing this as a way of being, a way of interacting. Um, But I do observe uh, people gradually moving closer to this ability to to recognize when we're stuck in an either-or trap with each other and then say, okay, let's have a different conversation about this. Let's take a step back. And and what do you think that I don't see? Well, right now I'm going to say we're going to have this, we're going to continue the conversation, but we're going to do it after the break. Um, Jennifer and I are going to continue to discuss her book, Creating Great Choices. I'm Laura Zarrow. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we help more women 
join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize their impact on the world around us. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're focusing on how to make challenging decisions, how to be more creative, and not just more creative, more effective at putting creative ideas to work. I have the pleasure of being joined by Jennifer Riel, co-author of the new book, Creating Great Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking. If you'd like to join the conversation or you have a question for Jennifer, do you want to talk about, you know, how you use empathy at work and how you're getting other voices in the room to participate in the conversation or a challenge about that? Give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So with that, I'll say, Jennifer, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. So before the break, we were talking about kind of these three core principles um, that's behind integrative thinking, this way of finding solutions that are not either or of the A or B option, but crafting whole new solutions in the space in between. And we talked about metacognition, in other words, being aware of how we're thinking so we can operate differently. We were talking about empathy and the importance and need to understand each other and listen to each other sincerely and deeply. And then the third principle, which is pretty critical in this, is creativity. Could you talk to us about why you think of that and how you think of that as one of those three principles and then how we bring it to life? Absolutely. Creativity for me is um, it's a little different than, than metacognition and empathy, right? Because it's not necessarily an individual act. It's not necessarily something that just happens inside your head. Um, but it is a choice, or at least it's a choice in terms of how we think about it. So when we are in that moment where we face a really difficult either-or choice, the options on the table look dissatisfying, mm-hmm. not like they're likely to actually solve the problem. Many of us in that moment will say, well, what are you going to do? My job is to choose. And the argument we make in creating great choices, the principle at the heart of integrative thinking is saying, actually, maybe your job is to create. Maybe your job is to use the raw materials in front of you, the tension of these answers, to create some new answer, an answer that gets you closer to solving the problem in in the way that you're hoping for, that creates new value that doesn't exist from the options that are sitting there in front of you. So you move from selecting mm-hmm. um, to generating and inventing. That, and it's a shift of mind as mm-hmm. much as a shift in practice, right? It's, it's not so much that people aren't creative. I think we know from um, great, great uh, <laughs> researchers and thinkers, um, whether it's David Kelly or Ken Robinson, we know people are creative. Fundamentally. Fundamentally, we are creative people. It's whether we give ourselves permission uh, or, in fact, tell ourselves that it's our job right. to engage in the creative act. And in some cases, whether we are still in touch with how to bring that out in ourselves. And that's about practice. Yes. I mean, I think that um, every skill is, is learnable over time, and creativity is a, is a skill as well as a mindset. And so it's about practice, collaborating together with others to seek better answers. And the more you do it, the better you will get, both as an individual and as a team. One of the things I love in the way that you describe that is you also connected the dots for me between a way that I I use think about creativity and innovation as mm-hmm. almost as a form of applied creativity. That 
you know, the, I think the first point that we're all fundamentally creative. We're all capable of coming up with new ideas. Mm-hmm. We're all capable of making something from nothing. Sometimes it can be scary, and sometimes we can produce things that aren't really appealing to other people or useful, but it doesn't mean we can't generate new stuff. Mm-hmm. And that the we need the process to help us take um, those ideas, whether they're images or sounds or words or systems or inventions or whatever it is that we're conjuring, to figure out how to both cr- generate it, but then also how to bring bring the ones that are good to life, mm-hmm. right, and develop them in a way that can help them get better in the process. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that the principle that we're all creative people and that it needs um, some structure to be unleashed is, is very compelling to me. My earlier life before before I met Roger and, and did my MBA here at the Rotman School with him and then stayed stayed on to work, I was a creative, right? I always loved that term, um, <laughs> a creative. That's my job description. I was a copywriter. Um, and so I had a creative job. I saw myself as a creative person. If someone had said, could you draw something, I would have said no, but that's okay. That's a different form of creativity. Mm-hmm. What is amazing to me as I engage with leaders of all kinds, and and frankly, we've been doing integrative thinking training with teachers and kids for the last few years as well, is how often people will say, I'm not a creative person. It's just not what I do. Um, And it's uh, heartbreaking to me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because we all are. We are creative people. You might not be an artistic person. You might not have talent when it comes to music or drawing. But that is not the same thing as being a creative person. A creative person creates. They think of new, interesting, novel ways of solving a problem or coming at a particular challenge. And, and that is a capacity that is within all of us. It just needs to be cultivated and we need to create conditions for the people around us that enable it to come out. Absolutely. And even the most and you think in particular, the most gifted people mm-hmm. who are talented, accomplished, working creatives, um, whether we're talking designers, Twyla Tharp, dancers, mm-hmm. um, everyone needs to start somewhere, which is not a magical act. It's a very conscious act. Yeah. It, again, it's a choice, right? Yes. It is saying my job is to do something new. Um, I have a great friend, Hillary Austin, who studies artistry um, and wrote a wonderful book called Artistry Unleashed in which she sort of looks at artistry across different realms. And um, she talks about this fundamental tension we all have in in ourselves between mastery, doing more of what we're already good at, and originality, Mm. trying something new. And truly great artists and truly great leaders of any kind find a more productive balance between those two things. And I think one of the things that's so powerful in what you've articulated for us in the book is it's a process where we also can create new things. We can make something out of nothing without being, without it being about art. Yeah, and I'll, I'll correct just one thing that you said there. I don't actually believe that we're creating something out of nothing. I think we're creating something mm. out of what is in the world. We're using that as inspiration because the pressure of creating something out of nothing is enormous. Point well taken. It's totally terrifying. I loved when you talked about the tyranny of a blank piece of paper Mm -hmm. and that um, part of why, as a trained artist, why I loved design was because we always started with a problem. Mm -hmm. And And constraints. Yes. (laughs) And the greater the constraints, in a weird way, the greater our creativity. Um, So talk to me about um, moving into the process. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the first step? 
So as with all problem-solving methodologies, at some point you have to say, what's the problem I'm solving? We don't spend an exorbitant amount of time, a huge amount of time on <laughs> defining that problem. We just say, does this feel like a problem we're solving, right? The answers on the table aren't good enough. This is a problem that it's worth spending some time thinking about, so it's not what's for lunch, <laughs> right. unless you're really passionate about what's for lunch. Um, where you lack that better answer and you, you wish you had it and you say, all right, I'm going to spend a little time thinking this through. Once you've done that, you sort of cross into the first stage of the process for us, which is um, building the tension between opposing answers. So if I'm trying to figure out how to structure my organization and there are a whole bunch of people in the organization who are saying, you know, we're way too centralized, um, we're not able to be agile, we're not able to make decisions uh, with the customer in mind because the people making the decisions are really far from the customer. We need to be really, really, really more decentralized than we are. You've got other people saying, no, 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 you need to be way more centralized because we need economies of scale and we need the efficiencies and we need to be aligned. Um, no, no organization I've ever met feels totally happy with the answer that <laughs> they have. Right. Um, once you've got more than two people in the organization, you have this eternal challenge of what do we centralize and, and what do we decentralize. So what we do is say, let's consider not all of the many, many, many variations that exist on a spectrum or a continuum between being totally centralized and totally decentralized, but let's spend time at the extremes. Let's seek to understand what it would look like to be totally centralized in, a, in an extreme, even beyond what we would imagine uh, as being realistic kind of way, and then do the same for decentralization. And this this is important because it depersonalizes mm -hmm. the models, right? No one in the room is actually saying, that's what we should do. That's the answer. Right. And, and it also stops it from being my idea or your idea to we're pushing this to ex its extreme. Exactly. And then we tell people, try to fall in love with those models. It's, it's very purposeful language. It's meant to be playful. Um, but it but, also conjures that empathy that you were talking mm -hmm. about before. Yeah, and we try here to say, you know, don't think about it just from your own perspective. If it's a business problem, what would be great about this answer for customers? Right? That's empathy there, too. What would be great for our employees of different right. kinds? And what would be great for our shareholders? If it's, if it's an organizational challenge, they matter, too. Um, and seek to really understand what works about these models. What are the raw materials that you might want to take with you as you seek to generate that better answer. So it sounds like there's two components of it. One is going to the far end of the spectrum to wrap your head around the extreme mm -hmm. and to understand it and actually see where its values are. Yes. And then to come up with different versions of it so that you're not stuck with the one that you, that you were presented with initially, but you're taking your deepened understanding of it as a way of thinking about different forms that that could take. Yeah, I mean, I think you're starting to get to where we go from that initial first step. I think the first step really is about deeper understanding, more deeply engaging with those two extremes um, to set you up to then move on to these subsequent stages that are more about imagining different answers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happens next? So as you seek to fall in love with the two answers, as you seek to understand what people really get from them, we then move to a more critical mindset, right? We've been in a very affectionate and loving mindset. We moved to a more critical <laughs> one where we start to question. We hold those two models in tension and we say, what do we notice as we look at them together, right? If they're opposing answers, um, there should be real tension between the outcomes. But sometimes we'll notice that there are 
some similar outcomes we might not have anticipated. Um, there are places where you get really powerful outcomes in one that you don't in the other. And what does that mean? And are we making assumptions here that we should be questioning? What assumptions lead to those different outcomes? And what are we assuming about the different players in the system and, and how they get what they need? And have we really thought about what causes the outcomes that we most value? So you're seeking to engage more critically and more deeply in examining these two models and what you see when you hold them up to the light together. And it's really about understanding them so that you can then figure out where to go next. Exactly. Because part of this, this stage is, is also saying, okay, of all of those things, all of those outcomes that I see uh, from these two opposing models, what is it I truly value? What is it I really am trying to take away from these two models? It's not that anyone's in love with the idea of centralization when you put that heading on it. There are outcomes of centralization that I seek, and centralization is the way we know to get them today. Or an example that you gave in the book, and I want to make sure I'm understanding it right. You were talking about um, two different film festivals, Mm -hmm. one that's um, funded by kind of sponsors and filled with celebrities and gets lots of public attention for the films and the film companies, and one that's funded through ticket sales and is really about serving a community and bringing films to the community. Both things had value for different stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one extreme is can, and the other extreme is, um, you know, a film festival at college that's really just for students. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's one city with one increasingly large film festival, how could you structure it so you don't have to choose one or the other, but you can find a way to advance both the agendas of both communities? Exactly. And you want to understand what it is that those players are getting out of it. And many leaders would look at a challenge like that and say, well, it's just optimization, right? I just have to pick the point on the line between being super exclusive and super industry-oriented Uh, and between, on the other extreme, being all about the community and very grassroots um, and really about the love of film. I just have to pick the point on the line of adding enough exclusivity that I get enough money, but I'm not giving up too much of the grassroots community feel. Um, And the particular example in the book is is actually about a, a gentleman named Pierce Handling who took over Toronto's Festival of Festivals in the 1990s and was faced with this challenge. It was a very community-oriented festival, um, and it wasn't very sustainable. He wasn't making enough money to sustain it year over year. And he looked at his little community festival, and he looked at Khan, and he said, what is that better answer? Khan has something I don't have, which is um, buzz. The media shows up and reports and talks about it, and that attracts the sponsors. I don't have that. Um, it comes through exclusivity at Con, through the fabulous parties and a big grand prize given by a jury. Could I imagine achieving buzz in a very different way, in a very powerful way, coming out of a community-oriented festival? What could that look like if we were trying to build something that combined the best of what I have with the things I most value from Con? Right. And in doing so, um, he actually deeply understood both sides and was then freed in a way Mm -hmm. to say, how do I get to the goal without choosing only option A or option B? Absolutely. And and Piers has talked uh, over the years a lot about his his intentional building of festivals within a festival and, and what it meant to him to try to find a way to use the Toronto audience as as a lever for creating real powerful buzz. It turns out Toronto audiences are really valuable 
to Hollywood studios and studios from around the world because one of the really cool things about my city is that it's massively diverse, which means that if a Toronto audience goes to see uh, a movie at the now renamed Toronto International Film Festival and they love it, that's predictive. If a Toronto audience loves your movie, it's quite likely that movies around uh, film filmgoers around the world will love it too. And so you will make money on that movie. It's kind of like the most amazing focus group Mm -hmm. that has the end necessary for decent statistics. Exactly. And then you can imagine how buzzworthy that really becomes. Enormously. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Jennifer Riel, co-author of the new book, Creating Great Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking. So... We've talked through how you kind of articulate the models, examine the models. I think the story about the festival um, also hinted at the ways that we can explore possibilities. Mm -hmm. Where does design thinking come in in this? So design thinking um, was a powerful influence on us. Um, This sort of this notion, this great notion um, that if more of us were able to leverage the tools and mindset of a designer – we would have a, a better chance of innovating on our toughest problems. And, and two of the big principles uh, from design thinking that were powerful to us, one, deep empathy for the end user. Mm-hmm. So you can see that that's embedded um, in how we think about what integrative thinking is. But the second thing um, is rapid prototyping, yep. building multiple solutions and getting them in front of people before you even feel ready when they're incredibly rough and they're still ideas and learning, uh, building to fail. And then learning from that, learning from failure. And so that is embedded in the final two steps of our process. So the third step is really seeking to generate multiple different possible better answers. So how could I integrate across these two models, take the pieces I really love and create an answer that is better than what we have today? Not the right answer, not the perfect answer, but better. Ideally, you get a few of those and then you can ultimately move to stage four of our process, the final stage, which is about testing. For a long time, we didn't have a stage four. Um, <laughs> we just said, you know, you come up with a better answer, yay. Um, no, but, the testing's critical because well, otherwise I, it, it stays in the abstract. When you, you have a lot of experience in this as someone who's, who's <laughs> done a lot of innovation, right, the worst thing you can do as an innovator is come to the organization and say, let me tell you, I have the best idea ever. It's amazing. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't trust, work. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> Let's do it. And what has been your experience, right? Yeah, it doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, nice try, but no. Where's the evidence? Where's the data? No chance. Um, And so this is about getting you to a place where you feel more comfortable choosing which of the possibilities you want to ultimately bet on. But you also are building some data and some evidence about what it can actually look like in practice. So that was a huge uh, insight from the world of design thinking that we have blatantly stolen or um, adapted. <laughs> uh, Honored by including in your process. Exactly. Um, it's yeah, it's so powerful. Um, and I think one of the things we don't do nearly enough of, regardless of whether it is part of the integrative thinking process or just a, a general decision-making process in organizations, I think we spend a lot of time defending our ideas in brilliant, perfect, massive PowerPoint decks, <laughs> right, and hiding the idea until it's perfect and then defending it from any possible critique as opposed to saying, hey, I've got this kind of wacky idea and it's still an idea. I'm not sure if it's anything, but let me tell you about it. Right. What do you think? One of the – there were two things um, in this section of the book that really spoke to me personally because it reminded me of lessons that I learned both in art school and then in 
translating into a world with people who didn't always um, approach problem solving the way that I did. Mm. So one of them was the the process of generating ideas of how important it is to make a safe judgment free zone mm. during the idea generation. That like an example that we got when we were in art school, it was in an industrial design class. And part of it was just to teach us process. But we each had an assignment, come up with 100 things to do with a brick mm-hmm. and don't judge it. You know, make earrings out of them. Fine. Move on. Next idea. And then afterwards, and we generated them individually and then collectively looked for exciting ideas. We looked for funny ideas. We looked for impossible ideas and debated some of them. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that was embedded in some of what you were writing about is to separate those two processes of analyzing what you've suggested from the suggestion process. You can't know. In the suggestion process, whether it's a good idea or not, you, you can't. No. You haven't thought about it enough. And plus, even if it turns out to have been an absolutely horrible idea, right, you saying it out loud may spur something amazing from someone else. Ac- absolutely. And the opposite of your judging it will shut everyone else down. And that comes back to the idea that this is our diversity in a room, our diversity of thought, our diversity Mm -hmm. of experience is powerful when we bring our different perspectives to bear on a problem. Mm -hmm. And if you shut everybody down by judging their creativity, you're not really going to make use of the gift that's in the room. And this is where every individual in that room has a role to play. Certainly the leader Mm -hmm. has has a role to play, um, but we as individuals, one, preventing ourselves from self-censoring, right? Just say it. (laughs) Just say it because if I say it, then you are more likely to say the thing that is in your head and will establish a new norm. Um, And it it just lets us get to a a better place. Um, But also encouraging it in others, right? When Mm -hmm. someone uh, says something that that is kind of out there, um, (laughs) responding with enthusiasm and curiosity uh, is a really powerful way Uh, to help ensure that we keep getting more and more and more of those ideas. Then there's another part of the book that I thought was really useful. Um, I remember struggling where I could come up with idea after idea and other people weren't getting it. Mm -hmm. And they would say to me, just put it on paper. I'm like, really? If I just write the words that I just said to you, all of a sudden it becomes real? Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that. And I think the thing I really wasn't understanding was, it was totally crystal clear in my brain, but I had to give it to them in a form that they could understand. And in the book, you talk about how to make your ideas visual, mm-hmm. tangible. How do, you, how do you draw something? How do you make a chart? How can you get the idea out of your head and into a form so that somebody else can understand it without being held back by your anxiety about whether or not you're an artist? Yeah, this is another really powerful insight that that comes from the heart of design thinking, right? Um, Making ideas uh, visible and visual Mm -hmm. as soon as we can. Um, I think it's extraordinarily important for two reasons. One, you've highlighted, which is that it enables you to share with other people. We all are different learners. Some are uh, visual learners. Some are auditory learners. So providing different ways into the idea is powerful. But I've certainly found I'm not a great sketcher. But when I do it, when I sort of push myself to do it, you become very clear about the gaps in your own thinking that were papered over when it was just a thought in your own mind. When you actually try to translate that into a drawing or even into narrative, right? 
here's how this idea would actually work in practice, you start to see those gaps and it forces you to think more deeply about the idea. So are those gaps a problem or are they a gift? Well, they're a problem if you don't notice them or if you pretend they don't exist. Um, <laughs> the gift is, is where they're a push to make the idea better. Uh, and so I, I like to think of them that way, but we have to sort of choose um, that we're going to engage with them in that way and be much more comfortable in the notion that I think it's Ed Catmull at Pixar who says, you know, all new ideas suck, ultimately, right, when you <laughs> right. start. Um, and our job is to make them not suck, right? That's, that's the process of creativity. Um, and, the, and then we think about it in a very similar way. I do, too, because as a matter of fact, I I always knew that that moment where when a design project was done, when it looked like shouldn't it have always been that way, it stopped mm-hmm. sucking and all of a sudden it made sense. But in the book, you put it um, in a couple of ways that I thought were really lovely. One was that those logic gaps are the sign of a new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, an old idea wouldn't have the gaps. Mm-hmm. And if and it means you've hit on something new, work to fill the gap. And the other is that when we start with these new ideas, um, we begin the process of learning about it. The new idea isn't the end. It's actually the beginning. Yeah, and that's exciting, right? That's the fun totally. part. <laughs> and Jennifer, I have to tell you, you know what the fun part has been for me? Getting to talk to you for an hour about all of this stuff. You've really been wonderful. Well, it's been really fun. Um, if people want to learn more about your work or the book, how can they find you and it? So the simplest way is you can go and, and Google Creating Great Choices, and you'll find that it's for sale on Amazon and it's for sale at Harvard Business Review Press's uh, site as well and all kinds of fantastic other bookstores, CEO Reed and all of this. <laughs> fantastic. Um, my co-author, Roger Martin, uh, has his own website, rogerlmartin.com, and you can find more there. And you can find me uh, at the Rotman School, uh, which is the University of Toronto. It's the business school here. Jennifer, thank you so much. And I'd also like to thank Octavia, Tatiana, my marvelous producer, Patty, Jackie, who's in the booth today. Um, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you.